morning. Please follow and listen to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. Romans 12, verses 1 through 13. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy... Let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Let's pray. Father, we gather together this morning around your word to hear what it is you have to say to our life together as brothers and sisters. We offer up thanks this morning for what you've done for us on our behalf, that you've included us in your plan to rescue the world, to make the world reflect your glory. Father, may our serving, may our love, may our acts toward one another be genuine. Lord, may may our service and love be born out of a true understanding of what you have done for us, where we have come from, how much you loved us when we were unlovable. Lord, may the words that we listen and hear and read this morning change us to make us more like Jesus. Lord, also as we gather this morning, we remember our leaders, those that are in responsibility around us in government offices, from local county officials and law enforcement, all the way up through to our legislators and governor. The last year has been very difficult, Father, for many, and um, despite our disagreements and um, problems with the laws and and goings-on of our leaders, we do seek their good. Father, we seek their redemption, and we ask, Lord, that you'd go before them and give wisdom. Father, we also remember um, our brothers and sisters in the Camden area that attend um, Chestnut Street Community Church. We pray that your light would shine brightly in their midst so that it would shine brightly in their community. We pray for Pastor Adam Colstrom down there, that you would equip him to guide and lead and teach your word to the the people down there. So Lord, our, our prayers are for them this morning, that you would bless them and Cause them to be a blessing where they're at. 
we bring these things before you this morning. We, we pray for our brother Jamie, who teaches the word this morning, that your spirit would use your word to change us. And we give you thanks for all that you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Jay. Um, before we get into the, the text this morning, just a few things uh, that I can bring to your attention. Um, there's a possibility of a, a group studying Financial Peace University, which I think is done by uh, Dave Ramsey, a noted uh, uh, Christian uh, financial advisor. And if it'll go over sound financial, financial practices and principles. Um, if there's any interest in that, would you let me know? Because they're kind of putting the, the boat out there to see if anybody had any interest in that Financial Peace University. And then um, I just want to uh, thank the, uh, those who have been working with the teens here, um, Ethan and um, I know Birch has and Greg Harrison and Kim Mank and others, uh, Curtis and the Sunday School. Um, a couple weeks ago, a couple of them uh, helped out a widow in Lincolnville whose um, husband died last fall in just a horrific accident and uh, cleaned up her yard and she was just so grateful for that. I just want to thank you guys and Ethan for leading that. And then this past Wednesday, the youth group uh, went over to Pastor Finnamore's. It was his birthday this Wednesday. Where is this Wednesday? Yeah, this Wednesday. And um, they, uh, they raked up his yard and sang happy birthday to him and I know they were a real blessing. And it's so awesome to see uh, these young people who really have a heart to, to serve uh, in this way. So I just want to thank the Lord for, for his work uh, in that way. And, and a lot of these things are things that they're thinking of and they want to do. Um, not someone saying, hey, let's just go do this and they have to tag along here. That's exciting part. So praise the Lord for that. Um, <clears throat> don't forget that after the morning service we have Sunday school and, and these um, uh, besides the, the kids Sunday school time um, their adults are, are, are splitting up guys and ladies uh, here ladies in the posting room and guys upstairs in the auditorium we're, we're discussing um, some questions that come up from the, from the passage and it's really been rich discussions here and I've, I've appreciated gleaning from, from so many insights uh, guys today we're going to be up in the auditorium again, and we're going we're gonna to split up into um, additional groups here, um, smaller groups up there, and um, get some more feedback that way. So, uh, really looking forward to that. Um, and I just want to encourage you, and I'll say this again here if I remember, um, one of the important parts of, of, of a church body is praying together and interceding on, on behalf of, of one another and for the community. Um, we do that on Wednesday at, at 6, um, if it gets too dark for you, 6 or 7. Um, and I know it's not, uh, it's in the middle of the week, it's an interruption, so to speak, to your week. But never look at prayer as an interruption and, and try to push that to priority. Let's say, what if, what if you made like the first Wednesday of the month uh, time where you get together with us and pray? Um, one time a month, start there. Uh, keep it, keep it, uh, uh, the priority of the Lord Jesus puts it up. Because uh, it's, it's so key. And if it doesn't work for a Wednesday, maybe you could do it on a different day and say, and invite a few people over to your house and pray in your living room or outside in your deck as the weather gets warmer or however. In other words, make praying together a priority. It is, it is so key here. And, uh, Ian e. Bounds, who was a Civil War, uh, chaplain, uh, he wrote a lot about prayer at the end of the war, in the Civil War, and one of the things he really presses is that a lot of times we think of work as the things we do, and he really emphasizes that prayer is the real work. Prayer is the real work that we do here, because it it uh, it, it moves um, and greases the wheels for everything else that God will do here. So try to make prayer a priority, even if it's one time a month getting together with with us as a church in praying. Um, don't forget to grab some cookies. Um, May 2nd <clears throat> at 3 p.m. there will be a mother-daughter tea as Mother's uh, Day is coming up. And uh, the announcement here reads, we'll have several women share how they've seen God do things only He could do. If you'd like to share, please speak with Connie or contact her. Uh, you're welcome to bring your daughters to that. That's the idea. Mother-daughter tea. And then on June 5th, June sounds so far away, but it's not. 
Um, the Zoe, the women's center there, formerly called Carinet, will have a Joy for Life walk. Um, and begin at 10 a.m. Registration starts at 9.15 a.m. Um, and then, <clears throat> a couple things on the back of your bulletin as we um, look and decide what uh, would be a good fit for us, a new playground. We need some other people's insights and help on that. Um, if you'd like to serve on a team that is uh, looking into these things, researching and giving input, um, let myself or Kathy Kellett know. Um, really it's helpful to get some parent input, especially on that. And speaking of parents, um, Kara Adolfson and Olivia Pease and Heidi Kelly are expecting here at the end of this summer, and we're going to bundle them together here and have a, have a joint shower here um, in July. So uh, you can start to uh, think about that. Um, and then we will finish. If you've been tracking with our Bible reading plan this year that we started in January, we've been reading through Paul's letters. And this week we come to the last of Paul's letters, Second Timothy. This is his letter from death row. What are the last things you would say if you knew your execution was impending? Read Second Timothy 1 through 4 this week as Paul is passing the baton to Timothy to establish that church in Ephesus where he stationed him there. And along that line, is there anything from your reading in Titus, these three chapters, letter to Titus, that Paul writes that stood out for you? Is there anybody? Did you notice some connections between what Jesus has done with his grace, and then what flows out of that, he pounds that over and over, doesn't he? Maybe anything you noticed in the book of Titus this week? picture of what God saves us for, doesn't it? Yep. In the future hope. Anybody else from the book of Titus? Anything that struck you? By the way, peculiar now, It means unique is the idea. I couldn't tell you the exact word, but a unique like this stands out because of the transformation there. Peculiar. Yep. Right. Any, uh, any needs you're aware of in our community that we could be a blessing Send some, send some ministry teams to, to help with or ways to be a blessing. I know some of you are walking with some widows who have been counseling with Shane and Pease. And, um, and what a great opportunity. Get some exercise and uh, walking along with somebody who you're able to have some input in their life and, and care for them. That's tremendous. 
I saw a couple of hands here. Uh, Mrs. May? What's that? Okay, uh, Mrs. May could use some uh, loaves of bread that we give the visitors here. Um, you know, it could be banana bread or uh, or bread you make toast out of or whatever, right? Variety of breads. Okay. Uh, Jay? This uh, coming Saturday afternoon, provided there's no rain. Uh, or snow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll, be, we'll be making some trips to the dump with some pickup trucks in Thomaston for a rain. So if anybody wants to be a part of that, they can just see me, call me. All right. Next week. Awesome. Jason's setting up a team to help a widow in Thomaston um, clean up her yard. And so we got a pickup truck free. You can haul some stuff to the dump there uh, in, uh, on Buttermilk Road, I think. Um, there in Thomaston. Sunset Drive, just over the river. Oh, okay. Okay. So let Jay know. Tim? Also, next Saturday, if I just have one or two uh, capable helpers, I've got a guy I work with that he sort of sees no good that comes out of the church. So he's asked Jonathan and I to assemble a play set that he bought for his children. So it may be a good way to have a guy or two come along with me and so he can actually see the good that can come out of the church. Bring your ratchet set and a, and a drill. And uh, as long as it's not those hexagon old dome things here, I almost lost my salvation putting one of those <laughs> together. And um, it's kind of a, a dark spot in our marriage. <laughs> By the way, if you're thinking about it, they look real good on Amazon. The videos are great. They don't show the poor dad putting that thing together by himself, holding this and holding this and wishing he had two other arms. That was good. Right, so there's a couple opportunities with Jay and Tim and some uh, breads. Anything else? Uh, Tuesday, the sheriff's office has been doing the Wheels on Wheels deliveries. And we're always going to need drivers. And so this Tuesday, around 10 o'clock, we'll need some help with some people just to drive the wheels around. We give you a list of addresses and all right. Opportunity for Meals and Wheels. The, the volunteer support has been so low that the sheriff's office has been delivering them uh, here. So there's an opportunity. Anything else? It's great. Ways to let our light shine. All right. Let's get into the Word of God. Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> We're looking in chapter 12 where... 1 through 11 tells us how we've been blessed by the promised plan of God in Christ to bless others. And we saw last week is where we use our gifts among the body. All based on the mercies of God in chapter 12, 1 and 2. That we're to present ourselves a living sacrifice and, and be, be uh, not conformed to the world, but be unique here by our transforming of the renewing of our mind. To show that God's will is good. It is acceptable. It's complete. It's perfect. And Romans 12, 9 through 13 is going to build on that with this idea of love without pretending. Love without pretending. Love genuinely. I'm told that in a question and answer period after one of his lectures, C.S. Lewis was asked which of the world's religions gives its followers the greatest happiness. And he paused and he said, while it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is best. And his point was this. If you want instant, but very short-term happiness, create a worship that focuses on worshiping you. But if you want lasting joy, worship the one who is everlasting. You remember Jesus' creed in Mark 12, 29, where Jesus said, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. In a world full of narcissism, that shows itself in so many ways, but is right now in our face with the internet and social media, etc. here. We need to understand where true lasting joy comes from, and it comes from giving ourselves away 
and opening our hearts to others. The story of a Jewish rabbi who was renowned for his walk with the with the God of Israel, and he was confronted one day and took him by surprise by one of his, his pupils, his disciples here, who was under his, his, his teaching. And in a burst of enthusiasm, this, this young disciple said, My master, I love you. And this ancient teacher looked up from his scrolls and he asked his disciple here, who is so passionate, Do you know what hurts me, son? And the young man was puzzled, and he was kind of taken aback, and he, and he stuttered, uh, I don't understand your question, Rabbi. I'm trying to tell you how much you mean to me, and you confuse me with a question of, do you know what hurts me? The rabbi said, my question is neither confusing nor irrelevant, for if you do not know what hurts me, how can you know how to truly love me? And when we know the heart of Jesus, and what he desires, and what he loves, and what he values, will also know what hurts his heart. Let me just direct your attention to John chapter 17, because the heart of Christ is what he prays for to his Father the night before he is betrayed. And he says in John 17, he says something to this effect, I don't pray... Father, that you take my disciples out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. He said, they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And set them apart, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I set myself apart and sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. But then he said this, I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. His prayer is that his disciples would be one together in Christ, as Christ is one with the Father in the Spirit. So the world will believe that the Father sent the Son. He says, The glory which you gave me I have given unto them, and they may be one just as you as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect and one, that the world may know that you sent me, and has loved me as you have loved me. And then he says this, Speaking to his Father, here is his heart's desire. Father, I desire... That they also who you gave me may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. And then he utters this. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. But I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And he says this. I'm declaring this in your name, Father. And I will declare it. That the love which you loved me may be in them, and I am. Remember what the rabbi said. One of the ways we know how to love is knowing what hurts the individual we love. And it doesn't take a leap of logic to understand that one of the things that has to grieve the Holy Spirit in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ and the heart of the Father is fake love. Hypocrisy. It's no accident that we come to this now in Romans chapter 12 where he's going to talk about love after building on the doctrine of the gospel to bring together a church who is struggling in this. This is what he does in Galatians. He works through some of the things that they had a false understanding of the gospel. And then he says the end of the law is what? Faith working itself out in love. In chapter 5. And the fruit of the Spirit. And he begins with love. It's what he says in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 where he has unfolded God's wonderful plan here of the gospel and building a church. And then in chapter 4 he says walk humbly, love one another uh, walk in unity, uh, grow up into one, the mature Christ, 
uh, the, our, our head, Jesus Christ, speaking the truth in love. It's what he has done in Colossians chapter 1 and 2, speaking about the gospel and learning Christ. And then in Colossians 3, 12 through 17, after he's told them to set their affections on things above and be transformed. In chapter 12, 3, 12 through 17, he talks about forgiveness and love and peace and unity that comes out of this. It's what Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 1, talking about our, the gospel that keeps us in trials and hard things as exiles and citizens of another kingdom in this world. In chapter 1, verse 22 of 1 Peter, what does he say? Seeing then that you have obeyed the truth, you've come to Christ. And he talks about an unfeigned love, a not fake but without pretending love of the brethren. So far in Romans, all the references to love of God, they had been to the love of God, demonstrated on the cross by thee, poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit by fire, and refusing to let us go in chapter 8. But now Paul focuses on agape love as the essence of Christian discipleship. And Romans 12 through 15 are a sustained exhortation to let love govern and shape our relationships. Soon he's going to write about love for our enemies. At first he portrays it and says it's got to start in the body, in the Christian community first. He uses the word one another three times in this chapter here. And some commentators look at what he says in Romans chapter 12, and it is hard to outline, it's kind of a ragbag of miscellaneous stuff here, a little no connection, but it's a staccato, it's like a machine gun, banging out these imperatives, these commands here, of the apostles' description of what love is. It seems to have 12 components. And verses 9 through 13 is actually one, one sentence in the Greek, and it's hard to capture naturally in English. It's one long sentence, just one with one overarching idea, and it is this. Love should be genuine. And all the rest of it then are practical examples and framing out of what authentic love looks like in action. Let me ask you a question. What's the biggest thing that unbelievers accuse Christians of? Oh, you sit right right to the top, came right to the top of that, right? Hypocrisy, right? Not practicing what we preach. Well, look what he says here in verse 9. Let love be without the stimulation. Hypocrisy. And here's what we're going to see in this passage. By not obeying this command to genuinely love, we sin. And we stand against the very prayer of the risen, ascended King Jesus in his transforming mission. That's how serious this is here in Romans 12, 9-13. And here's what that sin can look like. See if this comes up in your hearts or your lives. We can hold grudges. We can be easily offended. We can have unforgiving hearts. We can talk about people in wrong ways, backbite. We can become little cliques. We can categorize people in worldly ways. We don't know each other. Reproduce a community that could be unenviable to the unbeliever. People without relationships. We could become guarded and scared to be transparent. We could be standoffish. We could be suspicious of other believers, judging motives. We could forget our eternal bond, and it can poison our witness. We could have very few discipling relationships represented in our church body. There could be discontentment that arises and bitterness and comparisons of people or, or, or not wanting to cross generations here. And Revelation 2, in speaking to the church at Ephesus, says they lost their first love, the love that they had at first. And God was warning them that they could have their candle. So without loving Christ and obedience to these words today, we can slide into a cold and distant and fragile 
flickering community and stand against the very prayer of the risen, ascended King Jesus in his transforming mission? Is there an answer? Can this be solved in our life in Christ as a family together? Yes! Here is the power of the gospel at work in us that first saved us and is at work transforming us as we say yes to the Spirit. How can you take the responsibility to walk in step with Christ and have healthy church family relationships? And the answer is this. Love sincerely. Love sincerely. Well, what does he say? Look in verse 9. But love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cling to that which is good. Now what he's going to do is describe what is good to cling to. And then by implication, what needs to be repelled. And so I want us to see this here. We need to hate what is not good. There's your profound thought for the day. Hate what is not good. Don't you love how the scripture makes it simple? Hate what is not good. Um, the way we do that is to think of a spring. All of us in the gospel are like a metal spring. When you press down a spring, it's got to bounce back, right? It pushes back, right? It repels back. The love of Jesus Christ that Romans 5.5 5 says has been spread abroad in our hearts, shed abroad in our hearts here. God has compressed the life of Christ in us. So much so that when we see evil or see what is not Christ, we should repel against that taking captive of us. We should, we should, we are pressed to the fullness of the life of Christ. We need to recoil and repel what is not Christ's love. So let's look at this passage here with that kind of a framework here. What is not Christ's love? What is not good? What is something to repel and recoil from? Well, according to this passage in verse 10, we're to be kindly affectioned one in another with brotherly love. So the opposite of that, what we should hate and repel, is a small, a little valuing of each other as family. Little value of each other as family. We're in Christ, we're siblings. Like it or not. Think about families. You can't be an unfamily. Once you're family, you're family, right? And there's a few crazy uncles in the family. And there's some aunts. And there's some pesky brothers and sisters. But they're family. And so it is with the church. We're family. We're to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And we're to repel what is a wrong valuing, a poor valuing of each other as family. The other thing that he says here is that we are to, uh, in honor, preferring one another. That's the idea of, of someone uh, uh, who is eager to see someone's success. Now, what's the opposite? What do we need to repel? Not being eager to see someone's success. Do you get jealous of other people in the family, maybe with gifts, or maybe with their successes, or maybe with recognition? Something we're to repel is a lack of eagerness to see our sibling's success. Then he says this, not slothful in business. Now the way that's worded, you might think, well, be a good employee. But what he's talking about here is not lagging behind in the diligence here in, in this idea of love. What do, we, what do we need to repel then? Having a careless apathy. A careless apathy. My brother-in-law um, served with the Marines in Iraq, and I remember a picture that he sent <clears throat> um, on one of the burned-out buildings, concrete block structures here. Somebody had spray-painted on the wall there, a building that had been blown up by the insurgents. Apathy kills. Apathy kills. Remind the soldiers of what they're fighting for, not to get easy to keep pressing in into their mission. 
Having a careless apathy is something to repel. But what else? Look what he says. Fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. I think, I think that spirit there should be capitalized every time it's used in Romans, the word spirit. It's used as the person of the Holy Spirit. So fervent in spirit. It's, it's the idea then of the opposite of that would be a frozen heart, a cold heart. A frozen heart. And then he says, serving the Lord. Well, what would need to be repelled then? Self-serving, right? Serving myself. Rejoicing in hope is the next thing. Uh, what's the opposite of that would need to be repelled? Being gloomy about life. All these things play into our love for one another. Then he says, patient, enduring in tribulation. Quitting when things are hard. And it's not easy to love, is it? It's effort. Patient in tribulation. Repel. Quitting when things are hard. And then he says, continuing steadfastly in prayer. And a lack of that, the thing we would need to repel would be a prayerlessness, right? And then he says, distributing to the, to the needs and necessities of the saints. Uh, the thing we need to repel is the stinginess. And then he says, giving or pursuing hospitality. Running away from opening your home to others. Those are the things we would need to repel, to spring back, to recoil from. So if there's things to repel and recoil from, then what are the things to be attracted to and pursued to be renewed in new life? And here's what he says. Let's put this in the positive. He says in verse 9 again, Cling to that which is good. Cling to goodness. Cling. Hold tight. The Christian is, is to be committed to the way of goodness. His whole life is wrapped up in it. He's to be glued to it. How does that happen? How do we hold tight? How do we cling to goodness? Well, look again in verse, nine, uh, verse 10. Be kindly affection one another with brotherly love. And it's this. Rejoice in the value of each sibling. That word kindly affection is a word for love which describes a natural affection that you and I might have for some of our relatives. And it's typically the love of a parent for a child. The other word used in verse 10 is to one another with brotherly love, the love of brothers and sisters for each other. And those words in Paul's day were usually used of your blood relationships or family relationships. But Paul takes those words there and he puts them into Scripture here and applies them to the family of God. A tender, a warm affection that should unite the members of the family of God. The early believers saw themselves as a family in a special sense. God was their father. Jesus, the son of God, they were sons of God. Jesus was their older brother. They were united in a love that other people saw only in those of a natural family. That was the only thing they had to compare to it. You know, we could be tempted to get upset at brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. But one of the things we need to remember is, he's still my brother. She's still my sister. Rejoice in the value of each sibling. And then he says this after verse uh, 10, in honor, preferring one another. Invest in each other, excelling. Rejoice to see people excel. The idea here is, is what Paul says in Philippians 2.3. Let each man consider the other worthy of more honor than himself. Thinking of yourself less, thinking of others more. Why? Because they're not only made in the image of God, just like you. But Christ himself, through the Spirit of God, takes up residence in them, just as you. And you share that together. So we concentrate more on their needs and lifting others up. There's a leadership culture in the world that even Jesus spoke about, talks about the way of the Gentiles, that um, tries to step on people to move up, right? There's an insecurity in the world, isn't there? You've got to knock people down so you look good. And Jesus reverses it, doesn't he? Jesus gets on his hands and knees and washes feet, and he says, you lift others up. You elevate others. Invest in siblings excelling. And then he says, <clears throat> not slothful in business, which is the idea of putting the effort into action. It takes work. Putting the effort into action. 
Make up your mind that this isn't going to come naturally, right? This is going to come through engaging, through dying and resurrecting. Through understanding that you're crucified with Christ. The old desires and rising again. Putting effort in action. And then he says, fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. Which is a really interesting word here. That word for fervent there is the idea of, of seething. Of boiling. It's even used up. It's the idea of, of a heat. What happens when you turn that stove on and that water starts to boil? Starts to bubble up. Right? The molecules start to move faster and that, that water bubbles over here. And the idea is this, with respect to the spirit, be boiling in a good sense. Fervent here. Fervent. The spirit of man himself, of course, filled and aglow with the spirit of God. Boiling in the spirit. It's a word <clears throat> used um, in other places in the Greek here to describe a passion. We're to seethe and burn, not with rage, but with the fire of the Spirit. We're to let the fire of the Spirit of God, the burning and heart of the Spirit of God, burn brightly within us, empowering us in our mutual service. That's the idea. Charlie spent some time in Alaska with the Army, and Mr. Mank spent some time in Alaska with the, with the Navy, and Clint, you were born there. Um, and told some friends that live in Alaska, and when temperatures plunge well below zero, at least several years ago, the way technology has improved this, but if your car was left outside, it's hard to start. Oil thickens, engine parts are held together like, like heavy syrup, and cold batteries aren't, can't give the power that they need to give here. And so sometimes they would keep the batteries warm. You do this with a diesel, right? You plug in the diesel. It keeps the battery warm so it can light that glow, get that glow plug hot. And batteries that kept warm are frequently charged to do the job, right? But unused batteries don't. They get weaker. And if you charge a frozen battery, it can explode. And it's same, the same thing is true with our spiritual batteries. Unused spiritual batteries will die in the cold unbelief. This is a war. This is a fight. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. Only by regular use and by receiving power from that outside source of the Spirit, a living sacrifice, presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, can the spiritual power be maintained. Because you can't take your power and try to thaw something frozen. <laughs> it's not how it works. Only a warm spiritual life can be charged with power by God. Fervent in spirit. Spirit-fired enthusiasm. And then, slaves to Christ. Slaves to Christ. Notice what he says. Serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. He connects us to our head. He doesn't just leave it down here on this horizontal level. The idea here is, you're doing this for King Jesus. King Jesus. One scholar points out that in the early Christians there were, there were ten things that seemed to be a rhythm that they were known for. Support of teachers and officials there in the church. Support of widows and orphans. Support of the sick, the infirmed and the disabled. Care of prisoners and people languishing in the mines that the Romans would send them to. Care of poor people needing burial and of the dead in general. Care of slaves. Care of those visited by great calamities. Um, could be sickness or could be a, an earthquake, you name it. Furnishing work and assisting, insisting upon work. Providing work. And care of brothers and sisters on a, on a journey of hospitality and of churches and poverty or, or peril here. Servants of Jesus Christ. That was the epitome in their day, in their culture, of what it looked like to be to serve. To give. And then he says this, rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in hope. In contrast with the gloomy outlook, we've been given a certain hope. The hope of a new creation with the Lord of Lords ruling and reigning. 
without ever even a threat. Unlike the Garden of Eden, there was always that threat of evil, right? The evil one. In the new creation, there is no threat of evil again. It is totally eradicated and gone. It's thrown into the lake of fire, punished forever. We have an eternal hope that is to drive our joy. Somebody said those that are too heavenly minded are no earthly good, and the opposite is actually true. An eternal hope drives our earthly good. And then he says, patient in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. Cressing in when things are hard. When things are hard. No difficulties in life don't give you an excuse to lash out at other people. Difficulties in life don't give an opportunity for you to hurt others, but they're actually a way to show that you're under the surrender of the Spirit, that even in these hard things, you can still love and serve. And then notice he says, continuing instant or urgently, and prayer. It's the idea of living in communication with the Spirit. A constant communication. A constant contact here. And that word there of, of uh, continuing is the idea of being attached. It's used in Acts 8.13 for this guy Simon the sorcerer. When, he, when, when Paul did something, this guy tried to almost attach himself to Paul. Or to Philip, excuse me. It's used in Acts 10, verse 7, of the servants who attended uh, Cornelius, the centurion. They were there at his side for whatever Cornelius needed here, attached. And it's the idea of making prayer and a spirit of prayer our constant occupation. Looking for spare moments and uh, continued contact with the spirit in prayer. Taking opportunities to turn to the God. With that, that could mean you bow in your head in prayer. It could mean you having a conversation in your head with God. That's always going on. That's always going on. Um, it is so awesome, the conversations to see, uh, uh, you know, after a morning service or some time before, to see people uh, uh, who, are, who are sharing some, some burdens and two or three people, and they are bowing and they, they are praying together about it. It's a powerful thing. Living in communication with the Spirit. Those people understand that rather than just talk about their difficulties, they're going to take them to the Lord and ask for His power and His strength in it. It's body life. And then a couple more things. Notice what he says here. Uh, distributing to the necessity of the saints. Distributing to the necessity of saints. There's a generosity here. A generosity. Look at Acts chapter 4. I want you to see this fleshed out in the early church there. They started to see persecution in Acts chapter 4. And verse 32 through 35 says this. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. He shared it. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection to the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of land or houses stole them and bought, brought the prices of those things that were sold. They liquidated assets when there was a need. And they shared. And laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to every man according as he had need. And there's one guy, this guy Barnabas, who kind of shines in that. You see here what love is? It's not a sentimentality. That could be part of it. That's not the full description of it. It's action, isn't it? It's action. Sharing, generosity. I want you to think about it like this. Let's imagine you buy some shares of General Motors. What happens? Well, guess what? You're going to start tracking that, aren't you? When you open the newspaper, you check your, your stocks on your phone, you're going to suddenly develop an interest in GM. You check the financial pages. You see a magazine article or, or an article pass across your screen. You read a, a word about it. Even though a month ago when you had no interest in GM, you may have passed right over it. Or maybe you decide you're going to give some, uh, you're, you're going to give to help African children with AIDS. And so when you see an article on that subject, somehow you're connected with that. You see an article on that subject, you're hooked. Or let's say your heart is connected to, 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 to plant churches in India and send money to help in that. And you hear about an earthquake that hits India and you watch the news and you fervently pray and find ways to help. Why is that? 
Because your heart follows your money, and your money follows your heart, doesn't it? Randy Alcorn points out that in his book, The Treasure Principle, do you wish you cared more about eternal things? Then reallocate some of your money. Maybe most of of your money, from temporal things to eternal things. Put your resources, your assets, your money, and your possessions, your time and talents and energies into the things of God and watch what happens. As surely as the compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure. Money leads, hearts follow. Open hands. Old farmer who is known for giving asked, how do you keep giving? And you don't have any resources. How do you keep giving so much? And he says this. Well, it's like this. I shovel in my bin and I throw it out there. At the same time, God's shoveling it into my bin. And God's shovel is way bigger than my shovel. Your heart follows where you place your treasure. And then finally notice he says this. Given to hospitality. The idea of given means pursue. It's actually used in the chapter later on of persecuting in a bad sense. What happens when you're persecuted by others? They want to chase you down, right? They're out to get you. And here's what he here's that word he uses for hospitality. Be out to get other people with hospitality. That's what he's saying here. Have an open home for ministry. An open home for ministry. And 1 Peter 4 9, we're told, the end of all things is at hand. Does it make you bite your fingernails? The end's coming, right? And then he says this have fervent charity one to another and use hospitality without grumbling. He doesn't say bolt your doors, chain up. He says, open your hearts and homes. What's hospitality? The word in the original means being friendly to strangers. So it's more than just having friends over, although that's part of it, right? And it's different from social entertaining. Sometimes we think of southern hospitality and laying a big spread out, right? And That's more than that. You see, entertaining focuses on the person who's hosting, doesn't it? Gotta have a spotless home, food well prepared, abundant food, be relaxed and good-natured host. And what does hospitality focus on? It focuses on the guests, their needs, a place to stay, nourishing food, a listening ear, some hot tea or coffee. Those are the concerns, right? Entertaining can't really happen in a messy home. The way we've described it, hospitality can Hospitality can happen in a messy home. It can happen around a dinner table where the main dish is Campbell's soup. It can even happen while the host and the guests are doing chores together. It can happen even when you feel tired or too busy or not wealthy enough. The word here is given. It's the idea, again, of pursuing or practicing. It reminds us that hospitality improves with practice, by the way. Max Lucado said, long before the church had pulpits and baptistry, she had kitchens and dinner tables. Even a casual reading of the New Testament unveils the house as as the primary tool of the church. The primary gathering place of the church was the home. Consider the genius of God's plan. The first generation of Christians was a tinderbox of contrasting cultures and backgrounds. The early church did, without the use of elaborate sanctuaries, church buildings, clergy, seminaries, robes, they did so through the clearest of messages, the cross and the tomb, and the simplest of tools, the home. Not everyone can serve in a foreign land, need a a relief effort, or volunteer at the downtown soup kitchen, but who can't be hospitable? You have a front door, a table, a roof to keep you dry, bread and bologna. Congratulations, you just qualified to serve in the most ancient of ministries, 
hospitality. You see, there's something that happens around hospitality, doesn't it? Right now, you're looking at the back of people's heads. And you're looking at one face facing you. And what's different around the table? You're around the table together. There's time to talk. Opens the door to uncommon community. And you know, it's no accident that the word hospitality and hospital come from the same word in Latin. They lead to a similar result. Healing of relationships and love. When you open your door to someone, you're sending them this message. You matter to me and God. You might think you're saying, come over for a visit. But what the people you invite over are hearing is, wow, I'm worth the effort. (laughs) People are worth the effort. And so this is what clinging to good is. Right? So to live a transformed life into obedience to the captivity of Christ, we have to repel, recoil from what is not good in our relationships, and by surrendering to the Spirit, move our lives into walking out this Christ life. The power from this, though, comes from chapters 1 through 8. We were not loved, were we? Because we were lovely, or worthy of, our, of, worthy of Christ's love, left to our own devices. The Gospel of Romans 1-8 through makes that very clear. And that's what Paul's bringing this Roman, these Roman churches to. And so where does this power come from? Because that's a tall task. And you can look at these things and say, okay, that's what it looks like. And boy, I wish I was better in this or this or that. And uh, that sounds too idealistic. And here's the truth. Here's the power. It is only when we look the crucified one in the eye that we recognize that abyss in our hearts that he died. It's only when we look at him appearing from the empty tomb that we realize the new life and power that he gives to live out this Christ-like love. We are loved because Jesus died for us when we were still ugly to make us objects of beautiful grace that shine. If you remember this, and you dwell on that, you will by faith take steps here of genuine love. You'll find compassion growing because he rose again to give us resurrection life. And you can think of it this way. Lord, I was repulsive next to your perfection and beauty and my sin that you opened yourself You gave yourself to be tortured and killed for me. Now help me to love this person and value them in sincerity. In fact, do you remember what Jesus says at the end of Matthew? One of his last teachings. He's speaking about the last days. And he says, he talks, tells, Matthew tells us that Jesus said, the things that we do for others and our brothers and sisters are as though we are doing it unto Him. All these things that we talked about, you and I would have no problem saying, yeah, Jesus walked on my home. Come on in. Or I do this or I do that, right? Continue, patient, uh, in tribulation, fervent for Him, and honor lifting Him up, right? And Jesus and Matthew says when we do it to others, we're doing it unto Him. When we love his children, we're loving him. And there is a heart that is softened by the gospel. There is a heart that is transformed. A sincere love that is able to say, we love because he first loved us. And so what we see today here is that ignoring these truths here is has a very dangerous effect. We could slip into a church that has its light eventually put out if we're not active in genuine love. And it's from this ancient God-inspired letter to a few house churches in Rome that needed to learn how to get along and remember what they were given in the Gospel. We needed to grow up. And it's clear that surrendered lives that have been transformed by the Gospel will begin to look like their Savior. As they shed hypocrisy 
put on genuine love by repelling what is not good, recoiling from that. Because the love of Christ has been compressed in them, and they spring back against what is not good, and pressing tightly and clinging to what is good and real love that comes from the Holy Spirit. So how can you take the responsibility to walk and step with Christ to have healthy church-family relationships? The answer here in Romans 12.9 is love genuinely without pretending. Practice genuine love because Christ has loved us. Let's pray. Lord, help us to never lose the wonder of the cross. Help us to look at the crucified and risen one in the eye. To recognize that old life he died for, that's nailed to the cross, and the new life that's released in freedom through the resurrection that we share with him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.